because if it doesn't, it'll just go away, and then I'm, I'm dead in the water. Um, so as we get started this morning, uh, before we read from God's Word, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you for this morning, uh, for this opportunity that we have to be together today. Um, thank you for letting us gather together as family in this, your house. We ask you now, if you would, as uh, we continue in our study uh, from the, the readings in John 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, we ask you, if you would, would you bless our understanding today? Would you guide our thoughts and our every step as uh, we learn more of your word today? Help us, Lord, to, uh, to look at these things and be able to see ourselves in some of the things that we talk about. And uh, if we need change, Father, through your Spirit, help us to do that. Guide us, we ask you, in this time ahead. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is a long ver, uh, section. It's uh, all of 1 John chapter 5. We will be finishing that up today. We'll be doing 2nd and 3rd John in the next two weeks. But if you would, would you stand with me as we read 1 John chapter 5. Here's where John writes to us. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey His commandments, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Remember those words, okay? Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is He who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have re the request that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. 
We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Grass withers, the flowers fade away, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And I got to do one thing before we get started, okay? To be or not to be. I've always wanted to do that on a stage, so I figured this is the closest I'm going to have. And I was sitting there thinking, should I do that or not? And I thought, eh, I'm going to do it. Anyway, forgive me for that. All right, chapter 5 gives us more reiteration of the source of our faith, what we do with our faith, or, or what we should do at least with our faith. And that is, and, and what is to be uh, our goal for this faith. This, um, and that is eternal life. We're once again going to break this chapter down into three segments, 1 through 5, 6 through 12, and 13 through 21. Verse 1 lays it out for us. All who believe that Jesus Christ is the Christ and loves the Father, we are born of Him. If we do that, it's made manifest by our loving our brothers and our sisters in Christ. If we love God, we will keep His commandments, which we are told are not burdensome. Matthew 11, 28 and 29. Jesus tells us to come to Him. All of us who are weary and are heavy laden or burdened. For I am gentle, Jesus says, and you will find rest for your souls. For he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. In other words, he isn't asking much from us. So, and, and that not so much that we feel bound up and are not capable of truly reaching out and doing for others because our love for God is so restrictive. That's not the kind of love that he's talking about here at all. If we are born of God, in other words, if we are his adopted children, we are going to overcome the world, folks. That's a promise given to us. And in that overcoming, we have victory in Jesus. And it's because of our faith. That this is all given to us, John says. And just for an underscore, he asks, Who is it that overcomes the world? Well, who is it? It's us. It's us who has faith in the Son of God. God is our source of love. That energy from the source is Jesus Christ himself. So many in the world want to believe. However, it's who or what they believe in that's the issue here. John 14, 6, we are told, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I ask you, what's so hard to understand about that question or that statement? Now, what does it mean to love God and keep His commandments? It means we'll not only love God, but we will also love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. When we love someone, 
we'll go to great lengths when it comes to showing that love to them, won't we? When we love someone, we'll go out of our way in everything that we possibly can think of to, to make them notice us, to make them know that we care for them, will we not? Plus, there's nothing that is too hard when it comes to showing our love for someone else. There's no measure of energy that can be displayed to that person just exactly how much we care for them. Expand that thought then to God, to Jesus Christ, and to the Holy Spirit, and to fellow believers. Our care and concern should extend that far. Our care and concern should be for all, not just to the members of Hill City Church. And yet, in my opinion, this is our immediate family here, guys. This is who we are. This is our family right here. If you'll notice in these five verses, there's no mention at all of hate or ill will against others. Now, are we going to agree on everything? No. But how do we handle our disagreements? Do we handle them with, with malice or with kindness one to another? Give this, uh, this next verse thought before you respond to that question that I just asked you right then. Look at he, or Romans rather 11.22. Notice, or note then, the kindness and severity of God. Severity of those who have fallen but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness, otherwise you'll be cut off. So you get that last part, otherwise you will be cut off. We are to follow God's path of kindness toward others. But those who do not practice kindness, well, look what Paul says. They're going to be cut off. It, it, it should not be very difficult at all. To love God is to love His commandments. As we've said, they're not hard. They're not burdensome. But it's in this love for God that our abiding faith blossoms. It's in this love for Him that we will find victory in His Son. And it's in Jesus that we will find eternal life. Now, Revelation 3.21 says this, To those who conquer, to those who overcome... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I have also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let's move on to verses 6 through 12 here. Jesus is described as having come by water and blood. In other words, we must believe on the Jesus who came by earthly means, though he was God the Son. 1 John 1, 1 through 3. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Jesus is talked about as one who was seen, looked upon, and handled. In other words, he was touched. He was real. He was physical. Not a ghost, nor a spirit, not to be touched. Just like water and blood. There are a few analogies concerning water and blood. Some may be accurate, others maybe not so much. But I think to simply attach these physical attributes to Christ should be enough. We know as well that these attributes are attached or were attached to Christ's body as well, just like they would be to, to ours, to yours and mine. 
So he truly was one of us. However, we could use the examples of water and blood in reality due to Jesus' baptism and his crucifixion. Water and blood. There again, through the waters of baptism, he was connected to us even though he did not sin. And it was his blood that was shed that connects us to Jesus through our salvation because he took our sin upon the tree, as Brett said a little earlier. John 3, verse 5. Jesus himself tells us that unless we are born of water and the Spirit, we cannot enter into the kingdom of God. We know that the Spirit came to take the place of Jesus after his ascension back into heaven. But we were not left alone to fend for ourselves. The Spirit... Water and the blood are all consistent witnesses to who Jesus is. They all agree as as one concerning who Jesus truly was. A little trivia here. Look at verse 7. We just kind of broke it down to the end that the water, blood, and spirit testify to the reality of who Jesus was. This verse is not found in any of the early manuscripts except the Latin. But if you look at verses 7 and 8, the impact of verse 8 would still be there. Now, I'm not going to bore you with details as to how verse 7 got into our translations today. Let's just suffice it to say it did. Let's move on to verses 9 and 10. 9 and 10, basically, John is saying here that there is no way that we should ever have more faith and confidence in what man has written than what God has written. We must have faith in reliable testimony. And it's here that we start tinkering with the Scriptures, believing some things and discounting others. Perfect example. This question comes up in every exam that we as a presbytery give our prospective pastors, maybe even some coming in from another denomination. What is your take on creationism, they are asked. In other words, if God made the heavens and the earth in one day, why would we accept that from Acts 5, verse 42, for instance, why would we think any differently about a day when it was written on that particular day in that particular verse, talking about the temple and going from house to house, not ceasing to teach and preach that Jesus is the Christ? In other words... Is it a 24-hour day? As many people believe now, oh, no, no. What it talked about in, in, in creation when all of that was done, it was not done in a day. It, it took millions of years to be able to get everything done. It took evolution of man to be able to get all these things done. Folks, let me tell you something. In the Bible, a day is a day is a day. There's nothing different. You either believe it or you don't. And as as for what we believe concerning God, it's made simple for us. We don't have to think about this at all. We either believe that God is who He is, He has done what He has done, or we make Him out to be a liar. You want to stand before God and tell Him that? I don't. Do you want to be the one that breaks that news to Him? I don't think I would want to be anywhere near you if that was the case, quite honestly. It's kind of a harsh statement, though, isn't it? 
And yet it is very, very powerful. Faith in God that we should have shouldn't be a blind faith. It should be a faith that we understand. It should be a faith that we can put teeth into if we need to. It shouldn't be just something that we accept on a whim and and leave it at that. We need to study to show ourselves approved, do we not? And by doing that, we learn and we grow. And that's how we begin to develop our faith. So it's not just a whimsical type of faith. Romans 8.16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our our spirit that we are children of God. We're not put out there to believe for ourselves. We are not alone. This is what Jesus was trying to get across to us in John 14, verses 16 and 17. However, as I said a minute ago, if we choose to not believe what God has given us through the Holy Spirit, we're calling God a liar. As a matter of fact, look through the Scriptures at every promise that you have coming from God, Old and New Testaments. They are words that you can take to the bank. Otherwise, we're calling God out, okay? As I said, I wouldn't want to do that, and I doubt very seriously you would want to either. And yet, don't we call God out at times, all of us? It's there that John is calling us out. If we don't believe, Do you realize that unbelief leads to a hardening of the heart? If we doubt God's word, Satan has an end. It literally pushes us farther and farther away from our Father if we have any kind of doubts whatsoever in His word. And ever closer to the clutches of Satan. And what has God given us? To reiterate it, it is eternal life through His Son. John emphasizes once again because He wants to spend eternity with us in heaven. He tells us this simple truth again as He tries to persuade us to believe. I'll repeat verse 12. I cannot make this verse any plainer. Listen to verse 12 again. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. There it is, folks. It can't get any plainer than that. It is the simple, unmitigated truth. If eternal life is up to me each day then salvation rests in my hands, doesn't it? If I believe less than anything about Jesus Christ being the true Son, the true avenue for us to eternal life, if we believe anything less than that, then we are beginning to bring ourselves into it and we start having a little say about salvation, don't we? Uh Uh-uh. That's not the way it goes. Well, we might have, you know, a a, a bad day. We might have a good day. We might feel farther away from the Lord. We might feel closer to Him. We'll just have to try a little bit harder tomorrow. Maybe a lot of us think this, okay? I just don't know from one day to the next if I'm saved or not. Have you ever felt that way? I have. You probably heard a little bit about that last week with Martin Luther 
on Reformation Sunday. John is telling us here, stop that thinking and stop it now. For you see, it all depends on what Jesus has done for me, not what I have done for me. Let's move on to verses 13 through 21. Assurances of eternal life. That's what John's giving us here. How how can we do that? How can we understand that? Because he knows it to be true. He didn't experience the beauty of heaven before he was able to offer us these assurances. He had no insight here, I don't think, though he had already written the book of Revelation. To that end, I don't know if, if he was able to see everything for himself, to see heaven for himself. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I do not know. Maybe he had glimpses. Whatever it is, however it was, if he did have glimpses, that just gives us more reason to heed John's words, wouldn't you think? In fact, if he did, maybe the words of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John should have a greater impact on us all to go out and teach and preach what many might be leaving this earth behind. These things I have written you who believe that you may know. Put that word in bold. K-N-O-W. So that you may know you have eternal life. Not that you might hope for it, but that you will know you have it. Have you ever played a game where you've you've hidden something and and everyone has to guess where that something is? You, You can kind of give clues like you're getting colder or you're getting warmer or hotter. And when they're getting hotter, and the players are searching and searching, but not exactly looking in the right place, it makes you just want to scream, It's right over here! It's right here on the couch! Boom! There it is! Stephen's banjo. But this is your prize right here. This is what you want. But you can't do that, can you? All you can do is offer them the clues to the availability of that prize. You know what it is. You know where it is. The frustration is that they are not listening to you as to how close it is. But then that sweet relief when they finally find it. And you're joyful in their joy. This is where I kind of think John was throughout writing this entire 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Verses 14 and 15 gives us an idea of what praying with confidence is all about. Now, I'll preface this with this. This is not the the name it and claim it theology here, okay? Name it and claim it theology. You want a new house? Television or televangelist might ask you on TV. Well, just ask God for it. He'll give it to you. He'll give you anything you want. Better yet, If you'll send us $100, we'll help you pray for that new house. Okay? However, however, if you don't get it, well, that's on you. You just don't have enough faith. But if you send us another $100, we'll keep praying to shore up your weak faith. The only one who named it and claimed it was the televangelist. Look closely at verse 14. 
If we ask anything according to His will, bowl those letters up again, okay? According to His will, does that mean that He doesn't hear us or is listening to us when we don't get the answer that we're seeking? Absolutely not. God is not an order taker, okay? Understand that. But He is a loving, listening, heavenly Father who cares for His children. Should we pray about everything? By all means we should, yes. Philippians 4, 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. You see, I think that the greater relationship that we have with God, the more that we study and that we pray, the more we understand who God is in relationship with us, what He does for us, how He responds to us, the hungrier we are for that closeness to God. And the small, petty things that we pray for Him uh, for will suddenly be seen for what they are. Meaningless. And a huge waste of time and effort. We must be confident when we come to God in prayer, though. That's a necessity. Verse 16, it's a very special request in prayer. For if we see a brother sinning and care enough about him to offer him up to God, we're doing what we're supposed to do, okay? That's what family does for one another. How often do we pray for one of our own family, Uh, especially if we see them in a situation that we might know that God's not real happy with them about? Well, it should be the same thing for our spiritual or church family. But notice what 16 says. It's talking about praying in a situation that the brother is in that does not lead to death. All right? And yet a little bit later on, John says that there is a sin that leads to death and perhaps we shouldn't be praying for that particular person in that particular case. Seems kind of out of character to me. On the one hand, one commentator I read said that Death in this case was not spiritual death necessarily. It perhaps was pertaining to a physical death. And yet if we know of a brother that is into things that could bring a physical death upon himself, wouldn't we, shouldn't we be praying for him? Sure. On the other hand, another I read stated that this death was perhaps brought on by blaspheming the Holy Spirit. This, in my opinion, and mine alone is willful rejection of Christ after having known Him as Savior. Still another one that I read, Matthew Henry said, it could be asking uh, that a habitual sinner's sins be forgiven even though he refuses to quit sinning. Okay, He, he, He rejects Christ, but he needs your prayer to be able to stop sinning. Sins like that, habitual prayer, is not going to be forgiven. It's not going to be forgiven. And we have to remember that. Maybe this is what's being said then and and that once a person goes that far, prayer really does not do any good. And yet John reemphasizes there that there is sin that we commit that doesn't lead to that death. But before we have that relationship with Christ, as Ephesians 2.1 says, We're all dead in our trespasses, in our sins following the world. So 
Is it asking for forgiveness? Or should we be praying for that person to accept Christ as Savior and let the Holy Spirit do the rest of the work? To me, I think that's the way we need to pray. So that's the clearest answer that I can give you on on this particular part. I believe that this is the sin that John speaks of in verse 19 or 18. The sin that is spoken of here where it says that if we are born of God, we don't keep on sinning, is talking about the habitual sin that we've committed before Christ. We sin and and don't even realize it, okay? When we do not know Christ as Savior, we'll sin and, and not think about it a second time, will we? We just continue it along day by day. Habitual sin in that life were ones that we wouldn't worry about. We had no real conscience about. We didn't, if the truth be made known, even care about. But God protects us when we become a child of His. Protects us from habitual sin and from the evil one who authors that sin. God is there to give us the help that we need to keep from wanting to commit those sins habitually through the work of the Holy Spirit within us. We saw it a couple of weeks ago in 1 John 3, 6. Whoever abides in Him does not sin. This non-sin habit becomes a a, a settled, continued way of life that, that didn't exist before we knew Christ as Savior. Knowing that God is there to help us should give us a godly confidence as we enter each day. Prepared to battle Satan Every single day. The evil not touching us means that Satan cannot attach himself to us. Now, what else this knowledge of protection against Satan can do for us? And that, this is the sad part right here. When we have that, that safety, that confidence that we have in Christ as Savior of our lives... The sad part is it allows us to see the rest of the world for what it is. And that's Satan's playground. That should not only be sad for us, but it should be disturbing as well. Knowing that there are so many people who are living for the world and not living for Christ. Which really brings us back to the beginning of this letter. The first four verses of 1 John 1. We know those things and we want to share them with you because we want to spend eternity with you. So this is what verses 20 and 21 are saying. We know the Son of God has come and you can know it too. We know that He has given us an understanding in God. The understanding that we want you to have as well. One that if you have it, you can see what you have been missing. And you can experience eternal fellowship with all of us who believe. We can know Him who is true. All of us. That is God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And folks, that's the simplicity of the gospel. That is the good news of the gospel. You don't have to have a PhD. You don't have to be a Billy Graham. You just have to be you. 
Remember what John was in a, in a previous life. He was a fisherman, wasn't he? Remember what Jesus encourages us to do, just as he did them, to be fishers of men. Just as all of those earlier disciples, well, not all of them, but a lot of the earliest disciples were. John gives us our story to tell right here. <clears throat> it's all about the true God and eternal life. It's about Jesus and grace and his blood shed for each one of us for the remission of our sins. It's about finding life in the one true God. For we will never find it anywhere else. Seems odd that John ends this letter as he does in verse 21. But it really makes a lot of sense. In fact, it ties everything up in a nice, neat little package. The only way that we will have that relationship with God, John keeps talking about, is to keep our focus on the author of life and not let anything else get in between us and God. Keep yourself from idols, John says. I dare say just about any of the letters in the New Testament could have all ended up with this same thought. As we're to come to Jesus as little children, John addresses us the same way. Little children, steer clear of idols. Idols will always choke out a healthy, spirit-filled relationship with God. Avoid idols at all costs, John says here. We will lose relationship not only with God, but with our brothers and sisters in Christ as well. We'll forget the motivation behind John, uh, 1 John 1, 1 through 4, and subsequent reminders of that relationship in the next four chapters of 1 John. Bottom line... We'll be back in the clutches of Satan once again. And I don't believe that that's what any of us want, is it? God is there for us. To protect us. To guide us. To remind us. John tells us right here, do not listen to another voice. Listen to God the Father. For it is God alone who can carry us to our eternal home. That's what we want to convey to everyone, isn't it? Let's pray. God, thank you for this message of, of hope, of faith, of strength, of courage, of the water and the blood. Thank you for writing it to us. Thank you for your desire. And I cannot imagine the angst at times that you had as you wrote this, knowing that not everyone was going to heed it. Not everyone was going to listen. But I appreciate the fact that you cared for us. And we ask your blessings upon us, that you'll give us strength, that through the Holy Spirit, that God the Son and God the Father will work in us to do good works in the days ahead that we can bring the lost to your feet. We know that your spirit will take care of the rest. So guide us to that end, we ask. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.